Today we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. My idea for this show was to invite guests and get the conversation started, to take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. And we encourage our listeners to look within themselves to take decisive action to make a positive difference. Welcome to Bill Myers Inspires. I'm your host, Bill Myers, and I'm very excited uh, to have with us today the Reverend Dr. John C. Dorhauer. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Dorhauer at this time. The Reverend Dr. John C. Dorhauer, author and theologian, currently serves as Ninth General Minister and President of the United Church of Christ. John began his ministry serving First Congregational United Church of Christ and Zion United Church of Christ in rural Missouri. He then served as Associate Conference Minister in the Missouri Mid-South Conference and then Conference Minister of the Southwest Conference of the UCC prior to his election as General Minister and President. Dorhauer received a B.A. in Philosophy from Cardinal Glennon College and has a Master of Divinity degree from Eden Theological Seminary, the same year John was ordained in the United Church of Christ. John received a Doctor of Ministry degree from United Theological Seminary. His area of focus, white privilege, and its effect on the church. With a personal theology shaped in the passionate conviction that God is love and God is just, John has embodied the United Church of Christ's vision of a just world for all throughout his ministry. On October 17, 2014, Dorhauer conducted the first legal same-sex wedding in the state of Arizona, when he performed the wedding service of David Lawrence and Kevin Patterson. In his first term as General Minister and President, recognizing increasing sensitivities in this country around race, John initiated the collaborative creation of a curriculum, White Privilege, Let's Talk, a resource for transformational dialogue, designed to invite UCC members and others to engage in safe, meaningful, substantive, and bold conversations on race. The curriculum and accompanying facilitator's guide have been used by both UCC and non-UCC audiences. Please help me welcome today's guest, the Reverend Dr. John Dorhauer. Welcome, John. Thank you, Bill. It is an honor and a pleasure and an absolute delight to be with you on the show and to talk about what I think is uh, one of the most important matters of our time. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, it has certainly um, been brought to light via the George mm-hmm. Floyd, the unfortunate George Floyd incident, which I think merely marked a tipping point. It certainly was not a first of its kind, <laughs> but it certainly no. was Im- impactful, uh, and I think it... It took us. Uh, well, there were, it, 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 yeah, there were a number of yeah. elements to that particular um, murder, I will call it, that okay. made it 
a tipping point. One, first of all, he was pulled over on suspicion of passing a counterfeit $20 bill. He was found to be unarmed and taken from his vehicle and handcuffed. And so what we have here, and and it was filmed. The whole incident was filmed. So there's no narrative the police can create on the other side of this that is more credible than the visible evidence that the tape provides. And so what we have is a black man handcuffed, sitting on a sidewalk, being detained on suspicion of passing a counterfeit $20 bill, who 10 minutes later is dead. And with previous such incidences, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, we can list goes Brianna Taylor, we didn't have the visceral, tangible, visible evidence. And police will create a narrative on the other side of that, that big privilege affords whites the opportunity to believe. Here, there's no opportunity to believe. The only appropriate response was utter and pure outrage. And that outrage spilled over into the streets, even with the evidence whites predominantly were unwilling to believe what they were seeing or even believing it, to think that it required of them any action other than, well, that's disappointing. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it's very interesting to me. I, I remember, you know, my father is a, is a retired police officer, and I know that, uh, you know, it used to be that if you had something like, uh, you know, videotape evidence, I mean, it was a slam dunk because clearly you can see. But anymore, what <laughs> right. I find is we're trying to explain away or, 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 try to, or trying to create a narrative that says what you're seeing is not really what you're seeing. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. But, uh, up, and, yeah. and here's the narrative that works. And all you have to do is sell, sell your narrative to the white audience uh, because they still predominate in terms of how effectively they can navigate the judicial system to bend in whatever direction they want it to. So you need to give the white audience a credible narrative to believe. And the most effective tool, even with video evidence, is when a white police officer says, I feared for my life and believed there was a real and present danger. Because once a police officer says that, with a real and present danger that they can articulate and defend, it justifies by their own protocols the use of deadly force in resistance to that danger. And white people will believe a white cop when all they have in front of them is a black body when that white cop says, I feared for my life. We have perpetuated throughout our history the narrative of the black man as savage beast. And so white audiences believe that narrative. Mm. What made George Floyd, again, so compelling is how could that white police officer have feared for his life when when George Floyd was apprehended, detained, and sitting on a sidewalk with no weapon? and handcuffed mm-hmm. with his arms behind him. It, it, 
that was the one occasion when he, the video evidence made it impossible for the white audience to argue that, yes, he had a reason to be afraid. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you're correct. You're correct. It it really did uh, did take away many of the uh, uh, possible uh, wiggle rooms. You know what I mean? It really right. did. Yes, yeah, the standard tropes clearly. that get played out. Yeah. Yeah. So I so I would like to to uh, uh, and by the way I appreciate you you stepping into that because this is this sets the stage where our now is <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. I right. appreciate that and so so uh, in our previous conversation prior to the the uh, the this interview I you identified three main points and I I really want to take time to to visit these because I was intrigued and yeah. and. Uh, and and these are things that you uh, uh, have obviously done some work in. And number one that you had listed was regarding uh, uh, whites uh, and their investment in the uh, civil rights movement. And now I'm assuming that we were talking about civil rights, i.e., is uh, what the the '60s that that particular sure. civil rights movement, perhaps. Yeah, and, so, and I would say. And beyond that, to the extent that whites used the paradigms established in that era of the civil rights movement as the means by which they would engage in any civil rights beyond that. So for whites, the model for what it meant to be an ally were the the models of behavior established in the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s. Okay, okay, fair enough. So so now you wanted to to address the that uh the, the white involvement, you know, sort of debunking. Mm-hmm. Uh and, yeah. and I'm very curious to hear this. So I'm I'm going to let you have it and and take us there cause... So yeah. Sure. I I would note a couple of things about white involvement and the paradigm of what white engagement in the civil rights movement looked like in that era and again beyond that. First of all, the the framework for what engagement, if not the end game for engagement by whites in the civil rights movement was largely uh, around the notions of um, integration, inclusivity, and diversity. And as we unpack them, what we discover is at the root of all of those paradigms is the instantiation of white privilege. And and this, I'm going to be very specific about what I mean by that. If we just look at the etymology of the words and what they actually mean and represent, every one of those concepts, integration, inclusivity, and diversity, presume by definition a standard that exists that in the context of race will be whiteness. That's the standard. So Mm -hmm. when you talk about inclusion, you're talking about by including something, bringing something into an already existing whole from what is recognized as currently outside of that whole. You don't have to include something that's already in the circle. Okay. And so to talk about inclusion means there is an already established norm that others will be allowed into by active inclusion. And the only agent 
acting or making decisions about inclusions are those already in the group. And, and again, in the context of race, that's going to be whites. Okay. Um, the, the same is true of integration. To integrate something is, again, to bring something outside an established whole and integrate it into what is that established whole. And again, the agent in this case is, again, those whites who are in that already established whole. And both with inclusion and integration, the agency of whites to make decisions and also not just let's let's decide who gets included, but we'll also make decisions about who will not be included or integrated. And the calculation was always based on those who would be included or integrated could do so only under the circumstances that they wouldn't substantially change what was already an integrated whole or recognized Mm. whole. And this this was often manifested in something that I would hear from my father all of the time. And I won't quote him exactly because it's offensive to me and would be to our listeners. But he would teach me over and over and over again as a white father, me being his white son, there's a difference between a black and he would insert the N-word there. Okay. And then he would go on to, to point out that as the civil rights movement advanced, if we had to choose between one black leader and another, Martin Luther King would be tolerable, Malcolm X would be intolerable. That's what the act of an, a white whole integrating or including those outside the already established norm looked like in the civil rights movement. Whites would always make decisions about which blacks would be integrated in or included in. And there were parts of the, the demography and parts of the geography whose tolerance for non-white integration or inclusivity were broader than others, but there was always a limit. And then once integrated into, there was sort of this tacit understanding that you can only be black to a certain extent. And the extent to which you you had to stop being black is when it forced whites to either change who they were or what their culture wanted. And there would be this nervous tension if the, if, if whites began to feel like, well, that's going too far, and all whites needed to stop that in the act of integration and inclusivity was their discomfort around that. Um, and so even blacks that were integrated or included in reached a certain limit at some point. So the models, the paradigms of in the civil rights movement of inclusion and integration were always going to be failed efforts. They would move the civil rights to a certain extent, but never to the extent that blacks and whites would be on equal footing or that there would be an equitable distribution of the wealth and power. Whites would integrate wisely in ways that they would still be able to maintain control uh, around the decision-making of how power and wealth would be distributed. And diversity, if we just quickly unpack that, diversity also assumes an established, recognized norm. You are diverse when you are divergent from what you recognize as the norm. And and again, the norm would be assumed to be the white culture. And 
anybody who was not white would it would give whites then the opportunity to claim that they were now diverse when somebody other than white was in the room. One of the ways you would see this manifest is groups would put together brochures talking about their commitments to diversity. And in those brochures, they would include all of the divergent groups that they were proud to welcome. It might be a college <laughs> campus that listed, we, we are proud to have representation of Asian students, of Native American students, of African right. students, and the list yep. would go on. They would yeah. never need to list, and in fact, never did list white students because that was the assumed norm. Whites don't yeah, make the, us diverse. They already right. are the established norm, and you have to be non-white uh, to be recognized as something that contributes to diversity. One of the other ways this would manifest itself is I would do this exercise uh, when talking about white privilege, and I would hand out index cards and say to the audience, I want you to imagine that in five words you have to describe yourself in such a way that somebody could pick you out of a crowd if they didn't know who you were. And then I would ask them to turn those in. In all of the years that I've done this, only one time did a white person list that they were white on that index card. Mm. I have never had a person of color not list the color of their skin as an identifying factor. This is a, a, a tangible example of how white privilege manifests itself in whites by by never affording whites the the opportunity to racialize themselves. They don't. And so diversity, inclusion, and integration, while noble and while advancing the cause of civil rights, we're never going to allow civil rights to advance all of the way to full equity because every one of them presumed an unspoken whiteness that's the norm. So that's one of the things that I talk about in terms of critiquing the civil rights movement. You know, that's very powerful. Uh, John, I'm going to... Uh... I'm going to have to just process that for just a second, and I'm going to let this audience sure. sort of do much the same. And we're going to take a break right now. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires right here on the Inspired Choices Network with my guest today, Dr. John Dorhauer. We'll be right back. Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, Bill leverages his background, talents, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates. Are you a subject matter expert? 
Are you here to share your expertise with an audience waiting to hear from you in only the way you can deliver? Are you ready to have your voice amplified across the airwaves? Inspired Choices Network has a global radio platform streaming to millions of people across the world. Professionally produced and supported by an accomplished team every step of the way, you can broadcast from anywhere in the world knowing your voice matters and we ensure it is delivered with ease and efficiency. Eager to hear your message, the world awaits. Contact us today to become an Inspired Choices Network radio host. Email become a host at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. We're back. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires. Uh, today, our special guest is the Reverend Dr. John C. Dorhauer. Uh, he is the General Minister and President of the United Church of Christ. And we were just in the midst of a conversation uh, just prior to the break uh, dealing with, we, we'd sort of went, walked through civil rights and uh, some of the uh, misconceptions, perhaps, of civil rights. And now we were entering the conversation dealing with white privilege. I think that's where we were, where, where we were headed. Is that correct, John? That's where we're headed, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Here we go. So uh so talk to me about white privilege and and uh sure. and, and I think this is a concept, you know that that uh I'll be honest with you, I don't think that uh, necessarily a lot of blacks really fully completely understand, but I'm more than certain that most whites are whether it's denial or what have you. It's a concept that I don't think they completely grasp, so I really do appreciate you uh sort of drilling into this and uh um, helping us out. Sure, let me see what I can do here. And it's interesting you say it's a concept that uh, many blacks don't understand. There's a young black man that I've befriended and mentored a bit. He called last night. Uh, he's a PhD candidate. He's about to finish up his studies in, in, in leadership development. He's brilliant. Um, and he said, I was having a conversation today with some of my white colleagues about the difference between racism and white privilege. And he said, just talk me through that. Um, this is going to be a, a bit of a generalization, but uh, for the sake of the, the time that we have, it'll work. Mm-hmm. Racism, I, and I used to say you can't be white in America and not be racist. I'm, I've backed away from that a little bit because I think there are many whites who are, are becoming seriously committed to anti-racist behavior. Um, and so I wouldn't characterize them as, as racist. I, I, that doesn't mean they're immune from still practicing racist behavior because it is so indoctrinated us into us and it's in the air we breathe that even those who are anti-racist are only on a journey towards that. But I, I, I'm as strong about that. What I am very clear about is you cannot be white in America and not be the beneficiary of white privilege. And for me, the difference is racism is the active choice of an individual who is white to believe that the color of their skin gives them superiority over anybody whose skin color isn't white. And then uh, live that out in behaviors 
that do damage to individuals and to the culture. That That's racism. It's overt, it's intentional, and it's based on a belief system that you hold to be true based on the color of your skin. Mm-hmm. Even the most committed white anti-racist, though, is the beneficiary of white privilege in our culture. And a way to unpack that is uh, there's a statement, it's a brief statement in the foreword to a book by George Lipsitz entitled The Possessive Investment in Whiteness, which is a a beautiful title and the perfect way to describe white privilege. Um, And the theme statement is this short, and it's in the foreword to his book, and he simply states, whiteness has a cash value. In the entire book, then demonstrates the argument that in America today, whiteness has a cash value. And he does that by talking about um, the earning potential over a lifetime of the average black man and the average uh, white man uh, with the same upbringing and the same education and the same career advancement opportunities. Um, the, The wealth gap today between white and black is as wide as it's ever been. The average, the latest stats I saw show the average white wealth accumulation to be at somewhere in the 170,000 range. The average black wealth accumulation currently is a tenth of that, or Mm -hmm. $17,000. It goes on to talk about uh, rental opportunities. Um, And we can think about the the red zoning and uh, unfair real estate covenants as a thing of the past. But within the last five years, um, Fifth Third Bank and Wells Fargo Banks were both hit with massive fines for violations uh, based on racial discrimination in lending practices for mortgages. And it was disclosed Mm. that those banks were giving prime mortgages to white families and denying them to black and Latino families when all other factors were equal but their race. Um, and rarely does our federal government slap anybody with a fine based on housing violations, but it happened within the last five years. And so it goes hmm. on, and, and the, the, the book talks about that. That's what I mean by white privilege. Your white skin has a cash value. It gets you into interviews. Um, it gives you job opportunities. It gets you into certain neighborhoods. It gives you access to certain educational opportunities. Um, it's not true about whites that they're threatened with one-third of their male population being incarcerated on a felony charge before their 30th birthday. That is true of, of black men in America today. We incarcerate mm-hmm. black men at a higher rate than South Africa did during the height of apartheid. And a criminal conviction, a felony conviction, compromises your earning potential over a lifetime. Another way I talk about this that is very tangible, Michael Brown took a step off of a broken sidewalk into a a, a low-traveled side street in his neighborhood in Ferguson, Missouri. At the same time, Darren Wilson, a white cop, was driving by in the opposite direction. If that's a white guy taking a step off of the curb on a broken sidewalk into the street, that white police officer never stops the car. Darren Mm. Wilson can argue that that Michael Brown 
violated the letter of the law, but under no circumstance would Darren Wilson pull that police car over to interrogate that suspect if he were white. I do that every day in the city of Cleveland. I walk out my front door across the street to an arcade where I buy a slice of pizza and to walk all the way down to the crosswalk and back would be a major inconvenience. And I do that in front of police officers all the time. I have no fear that when I walk off of that curb into the street, that white police officer is going to pull me over. And even if I did, it would never occur to me because it would never be the case that I would wind up dead in the exchange. But that's exactly what happened to Michael Brown. Darren Wilson can talk about the fear that he thought. He can talk about how much danger he felt. He can talk about whether or not Michael Brown was pounding on his window, whether or not he thought Michael Brown had a, a gun. He can talk about all of that. The truth is he shot him in the back more than 30 feet away. And this would have never happened to a white man with Darren Wilson. Never. And so white privilege literally means every day I walk down a different street. I breathe different air. No police officer is going to place his knee on my neck as I'm shouting, I can't breathe, and he's going to hold that knee on my neck until I'm dead under suspicion of passing a counterfeit $20 bill. That's yeah. never going to happen to me. So it means I breathe different air. I walk down different streets. I live a life free of the oppression that no black person is without. I don't care where they are in their life journey or where they are located geographically in the U.S. Um, and to breathe that air differently is a clear manifestation of my privilege. And so privilege isn't something that a white person even has to choose. It's something that they acquire benefits from every single day. I used mm. to do this exercise where I would walk, I would go through a day and repeat to myself, that happened to me because I'm white. That happened to me because I'm white. So I'd walk into a convenience store, I would purchase something, the person at the counter would hand me my change, smile and say, have a good day. And I would say whether it's true or not, that happened because I'm white. I drive down the road and I'd see a police officer pull over a driver who was black and I'd look down and I'd see I'm going five miles an hour speed limit and I'd say, I didn't get pulled over because I'm white. It may or may not have been true, but it was a way of reminding myself of something that whites never do. Every mm. day you are the beneficiary of gifts that are given to you because of your white skin. And there's there's no black person in America who's unaware of it. There are very few white people in America who are aware of it. And the more whites, if whites truly want to be, become allies in the movement towards equity, they have got to gain much deeper insight into the, the, the manifestations of their privilege and the clear impact it has on the lives of non-white peoples in America. Yeah, that's 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 pretty powerful stuff. And you are correct. It uh, from the standpoint that a uh, uh, few weeks ago I had um, Dr. Woody Myers on, who happens to be running for uh, governor. He's the first black uh, major party sure. candidate running for governor in the state of Indiana, and he's a medical doctor. Uh, that is his background. And I asked him about the. Um, fact that 19 states had declared racism as 
a public mm-hmm. health crisis. Health and yeah. and as I was asking him about that, you know, just the burden of being black, just the weight yeah. of walking around through the scenario that you just gave a second ago about, you know, I'm I'm at the convenience store, have a nice day. The the weight of walking into the store and eyeballs are on you. The weight of walk, you're yeah. already yeah. a suspect. Um, just the yep. weight of that kind of day in, day out, which becomes normal experience for a black person. Just like, you know, yep. uh, the American way is normally is white. That's our normal. So everything else is yep. abnormal. <laughs> so so what becomes normal to a black experience is something that's killing people. I mean, not not just the, the right. police brutality, but the physical that's, that's weight right. uh, 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 on the biology of just being beaten yep. and oppressed and and always suspected to be yep. something is is powerful and it, um it's yeah and it should be no surprise under these circumstances that blacks have higher rates of hypertension higher rates of high blood pressure higher rates of stress related illnesses and strokes and diabetes and all of these things that is a Absolutely. clear manifestation of what i said of breathing different air and walking down different streets mhm yeah, that's a powerful that's a powerful way of putting that. And I, I mean, I uh, <clears throat> I'm still I'm still sort of stymied and 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 uh, about that whole thing about 19 states declaring uh, uh, mm-hmm. national public health crisis around it. But there are many many other cities and counties uh, across the nation who have done it. In Indiana, the city of Indianapolis has declared it as a mm-hmm. national public health crisis, but the state of Indiana has not. So just to point out and, okay. and distinguish, you know, um, who who right. does and who right. doesn't, you know. Um, so yeah, I I think that that's very powerful. And you know, as we, you know, again, I'm I'm sort of giving a moment of breath to to process what you just said. And I think it's it's very powerful, uh, very powerful uh, analysis and information. And the way it sort of boiled down is just uh, you know, in sort of layman's terms, is more. That you know, when we talk about normal, well, that means white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what's a normal right. American? A white guy uh, or something? You know, it's just white. I mean, it's like you know, what's wrong with right. this picture? Well, there's there's some color in that picture. Otherwise, it's white. It's there's nothing wrong. It's just another That's sunny right. day. You know. <laughs> yeah, one of the things people have found, although I will say. More and more people are beginning to learn about and understand white privilege. When when I started the research on this in 2004, there were no academic books on it. There were a few sociologists and psychologists who were using the term white privilege. Um, But you really had to dig deep. Now it's become a part of our vocabulary, and we are beginning to gain awareness of it. And anybody who's white who says they don't believe there's such thing as white privilege. Chris Rock does this routine where on stage he, he starts talking about this and he says, I am about as rich as a person wants to get. And I'll walk up to the poorest white man in America and ask him if they want to trade places with me, but they have to become black and there's not a poor white man in America anywhere who would say yes to that. Wow. And it's, it's funny, but it's yeah. also, and he's right, whites mm-hmm. know. I would rather be a poor white than a rich black man in America. And if that doesn't disclose that intuitively we all have a pretty healthy sense of what white privilege is, then I don't know mm-hmm. what will. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. <laughs> pretty powerful um yeah, example, that's for sure. Uh, man, it's so incredible. So now 
I want I want to venture into I, I think we might be getting close to a break again, but but I want to okay. take a look at this third piece of of the uh discussion today, which was reparations. Yep. And yes. uh and I and I thought that was you know, as you had even said it when, when we discussed earlier, when you said, well, you know, n- nobody wants to really go there. Um, and you, you are correct. That one is like, okay, everything but that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everything but that one. Uh, because it's it's just something people want to avoid because it, it, it suggests dollar signs. It suggests uh, I've got to give up something. It suggests, I, you know, something. And so um, I do want to... Uh, open that can of worms so if if you if you don't mind if you would set up sort of a premise for this and if if we have to take a break i will sort of you know reach in and and uh and we can come back to it but yeah go ahead right ahead as we set it up there are two things that i'll i'll say about reparations and then we can talk in more detail after the break um the first is that the reason it is the hardest thing for whites to talk about is because they all know that in the end, reparations is about the redistribution of wealth. And the invention, the cultural invention of race, because it's not a biological fact, it it isn't. Um, it, It is a cultural invention. It was invented as a means of wealthy white men getting poor white men to be the agents of of maintaining their power and wealth. Not the poor people's power and wealth, but poor white people becoming agents of defending the rich white men. And a key part of the narrative and mythology that had to develop in order to win their defense was this notion that you're white, you're superior. And it prevented then whites from aligning with poor blacks in an effort to challenge the control and access to wealth that wealthy white men have. Um, and then along with that was the, the creation of the notion or mythology that you, anybody in America pull, can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And so white men were willing to hold on to their poverty rather than ally with or align with poor blacks. And because their identity was primarily through race and because they believed that anybody can pull themselves up by the bootstraps, they would rather hold on to an alliance with wealthy white men who were the source of their poverty than align with poor black men. So nobody wants to talk about this because it really is about the redistribution of wealth and access to wealth. And the second thing is, another way to conceptualize this is to see reparations as the act of repairing the damage. That's really what we're we're talking about here. And when you do Mm -hmm. that, you realize that there's not just an economic. You you, you can't talk about reparations without including the economic factor. But just redistributing wealth doesn't repair the damage, the psychological Mm -hmm. damage, the soul damage, the spiritual damage um, that now four centuries of oppression has inflicted. And and so those are two concepts that when I talk about reparations that I center my discussion around. Yeah. Well, that's powerful stuff. We are going to, to take a break and come back and dive in a little deeper into that because that's, uh, there's a lot there to, to, to dig into. So 
We will be right back. You are listening to Bill Myers Inspires. My guest today is Reverend Dr. John Dorhauer, who is the General Minister and President of the United Church of Christ. We'll be right back in just a moment. Today, we are facing some of the greatest challenges of our lives, from our health to political unrest, the environment, financial uncertainty, and the nation's racial divide. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Bill Myers Inspires as he and his guests take a deep dive into the issues that impact our world with an eye to exploring solutions. Emmy Award-winning actor Bill Myers is an accomplished actor, jazz musician, filmmaker, writer, educator, and speaker. As a biracial man who's both black and white, Bill leverages his background, talent, and voice through creativity, compassion, and connection as activism for social justice to focus on uniting the divide and compelling change. Bill Myers Inspires encourages listeners to look within themselves and take decisive action to make a positive difference. For more information, visit his website, BillMyersInspires.com, and sign in for the latest news and updates. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires. Here on the Inspired Choices Network. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for joining us. And now, let's get back to the conversation. We're back. You're listening to Bill Myers Inspires. I'm your host, Bill Myers, and my guest today is the Reverend Dr. John C. Dorhauer, General Minister and President of the United Church of Christ. Uh, it is an honor to have you here today, John, as we continue to uh, have these difficult, this difficult conversation. We were just uh, talking about reparations, and I would like to continue uh, that that point you had mentioned that there were two different sort of uh, points when you reference reparations that you are referring to. So we'll start there and and uh, get back into it. So uh, let's start with the economic side of this. It it really is um, about the redistribution of wealth, and you can't talk about the redistribution of wealth without then talking about also realigning access to wealth. Um, both of those are key ingredients uh, to, uh, to reparations. Um, you know, and the old trope amongst whites is, hey, I didn't own any slaves, or slavery was 300 years ago, why should I have to pay the price for that now? Um, and that is such a, a narrow, short-sighted understanding of the, evolutionary development of capitalist economy in the U.S. Um, because every step of the way where even legal barriers to wealth were dismantled or were, were created that gave uh, the black population a different kind of access to wealth within a, a Bill, am I still on the line with you? Yes, yes. Okay, yes. I, my phone beeped and I wanted to make sure. 
that whites within a matter of years found a way around that, whether it was in the Reconstruction era after the, the Civil War was fought or whether it was in the lynching era in the, the early part of the 20th century, Jim Crow laws in the middle part of the century, and what um, we now know to be through Michelle Alexander's landmark work, um, mass incarceration, all of those, the lynching, the reconstruction, the mass incarceration, Jim Crow, were ways beyond even changed laws to deprive blacks of access to an accumulation of wealth. And uh, all of the statistical data today suggests that that worked and is still working. So this isn't just a question of, well, slavery was a long time ago. Why, why should I as a white today have to pay the price for that? Um, mm -hmm. So reparations really does need to include strategies about the redistribution of wealth and uh, understanding that something other than our current capitalist system has to be created to, to open up access to and avenues to wealth that white privilege still maintains. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to point out that uh, if, and here, I'll make this point for two reasons. One is the education of whites deprives them of what is necessary to fully understand the complexities of what reparations is talking about. Because whites who simply say slavery was 300 years ago have been deprived of the education necessary to understand what continues to perpetuate that instantiates white access to wealth. And we, we just, we aren't told those stories. We're, we're not educated mm -hmm. about them. How many whites know of the, 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 the Black Wall Street in Oklahoma City and the riots that surrounded that 100 years ago and the, the collective effort to redistribute wealth back to whites in a part of the country where blacks had acquired wealth and power. Um, and so we, we think this is only about slavery 300 years ago because our education doesn't give us the necessary uh, foundation to understand the complexities of how wealth is maintained. Um, but we also don't know about things like the Black Manifesto. We don't talk about these things. Uh, in 1969, Jim Foreman delivered the Black Manifesto to Riverside Church in New York, a clear call for the white church to pay reparations to black America. And it did so specifically to the white church because much of the mythology surrounding the superiority of the white race was generated from teachings that came directly out of the church. And again, this is a part of the story that we don't tell. Um, mm -hmm. And so whites are unaware about the Oklahoma City riots and Black Wall Street. They're unaware of the Black Manifesto and so many other pieces of the story that support the argument for reparations. But then yeah. I also just quickly want to mention reparations also in the sense of repairing the damage. And, and I'll just quickly talk about a book written by a Korean theologian called The Wounded Heart of God, in which the Korean theologian Andrew Sung Park describes the Korean concept of Han, which is untranslatable into the English. But Han is the emotional, spiritual deprivation that one lives with when one is forced to live under oppression. 
where one cannot give their life in service and labor to produce the wealth that sustains them over a lifetime. Their labor is claimed by another who then usurps that wealth and keeps it for themselves, nor do they have any freedom about choosing what to do with leisure. There, there, is, there is no leisure for those who live under the oppression of another. And that deprivation of the capacity for your labor to move you forward through life or to choose times of leisure away from your labor produces over a lifetime what the Koreans call Han. And it becomes mm. the duty of the survivors of those who die with Han the ancestors who die with that on their soul, it becomes the duty of the survivors to find a way to heal the ancestors of the Han they died with. Shame is a word that approximate that, approximates that in, in the English, but it doesn't fully capture that. Mm. And what is it like for an entire race of people in the U.S. and their ancestors over 400 years to have died with that Han? And what is the responsibility of this generation of blacks and whites to heal the damage of those souls who have died with harm and to remove the threat of those who live today from dying with that themselves? And this is a spiritual and a psychic and an emotional healing that dollars can't purchase. And this should mm. never be seen as an either-or, but a both-and. And true reparations, true healing, true repairing the damage will not take place without either. And whites will sometimes interest themselves in understanding more about this spiritual healing and maybe being if oftentimes the, the savior to blacks who can bring healing to them. Whites are rarely interested in strategies that redistribute wealth. Yeah, anything but the money. Right. <laughs> Anything but the money. Anything but the money. That, you know that 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 is very powerful. The the Han is is. Um, yeah. How how is that? Is that H A N H? Is how is that spelled? I was curious. H A N H A N H A N. Because I was I was I thought about Thich Nhat Han and I, I thought you know because names <laughs> in certain yeah. cultures you know what I mean they they. They symbolize. Right, right. They actually have meaning. It's different than yeah, just Bob right. or you know <laughs> whatever. So, um, so I was kind of curious. I mean, I know he's Vietnamese, I believe. Or uh, was uh, Thich Nhat Han a Vietnamese, or I believe it was Vietnamese. I don't think it was Cambodian, but but I think that yeah. um, that is where he hails from. But yeah, I it that's very fascinating. But you know, the you you were alluding to this this idea that. The, that the the soul, uh, the healing of the soul, the healing of the spirit, yeah, yeah. being a part of this, which brings me back to probably what originally led me to you, and it was a uh, a post uh, that was on Facebook from the Archbishop of Canterbury, and during this whole Black Lives Matter thing, and he had made the statement that perhaps the church should reconsider its uh, notion of the white Jesus, and that. I reposted, and boy, it set off a firestorm. I didn't need to add water or do anything. It just, people just responded. I don't know what God you're talking about, but my Jesus is this. I thought, oh, oh here we go, you know. Um, so, uh, but that really got me to thinking uh, with regards to the role, you know, that the church has played in the perpetuation yeah. of 
these concepts. And we're, we've got only a little bit of time, but I do want to at least give you, you know, a minute or so to try to squeeze yeah. a statement in there. Because, uh, again, I'm not sure. making an indictment of the church, but I am saying, okay, if we're going to take responsibility, then make sure that, that but, it's being doled out, you know, appropriately. So I, I will make a bit of an indictment of the church. And there are two two sources I want to quote. One is my the man I call my spiritual father, a, a white man okay. who is himself dedicated to the work of race equity and himself a, a minister in the, the Christian faith um, who preaches what he calls a sweet potato pie sermon. And he essentially, he grew up in Fowl, Alabama, and he talks about a hankering. And if you're in the South, you know what a hankering is. And he got a hankering for a sweet potato pie, and there was one on his, the counter in his his uh, kitchen, so he stopped his car in the middle of traffic on a busy road in Kansas City, obeyed the hankering, went back to his kitchen, cut the slice of pie and took a bite, and it was rotten. He was just, I spat it out because it just did, it rotted, and it tasted awful. And so he, as he preaches his sermon, he says, what do I need to add to that pie to make me want to take the next bite? And, of course, the answer is nothing. It's right. You throw it away and you bake a new pie. And he says that's the metaphor for the white church. The white church is so thoroughly inculcated with the notions of white power, white supremacy, and white privilege that it's whites want to reform the church, right? Let's, let's add something to what is an already rotten pie until it gets palatable enough that we can tolerate it. And mm. Sam says, no, no, it's about birthing a church from the start that has no vestiges of white power, white privilege, or white supremacy. Mm. And I, I often preach what I call my the lion and the lamb sermon about this vision of the lion flying with the lamb. And I ask, under what circumstances is the lamb on any night lying peacefully with the lion? Under what circumstances? If the lion keeps its claws, if it keeps its teeth, if it keeps its muscular musculature, if it keeps its size, if it keeps its memory of the power that it held over the lamb, the lamb is only lying that then peacefully to the extent that the lion is willing to do it with him, and the lamb knows that any time the lion changes his mind, wow. the peace is you know, this, You know, John, this, this has this been is, a fantastic conversation. Uh, we are right up on the clock here. Thank you for All spending right. your you afternoon go. right here Thank with you us, so Bill Myers Inspires. Remember, we're here every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Inspired Choices Network. Remember to take time this week to take a breath and look within yourself and figure out how you can make a positive difference in this world. Spread the